0: This is a Saltile Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This is the first proper podcast episode to be released on the Ireland podcast. The purpose of this episode is to give a whistle-stop tour of the history of Ireland. I've recruited the services of Dr. Thomas Finn, Tomás is a lecturer in the University of Galway. I've had him on the Galway podcast before, which is a child relative of the Ireland podcast, obviously. Tomás gave us a comprehensive, if somewhat condensed, history of Northern Ireland for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, also known as the Belfast Agreement. If you want to hear that conversation, just punch in the Galway podcast into your podcast player and you should be able to find it in there. Okay, so let's go straight to that conversation and wrap it up. This is the Ireland podcast. Hello, who are you and what do you do?
1: Thanks very much, Fender, for having me on today. My name is Thomas Finn. I'm a lecturer in history in the University of Galway and I'm very happy to join you today.
0: Uh, Thank you, Thomas, for joining us. And um, I should say, so I started up the Galway podcast and I had you on talking about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The first podcast episode that I used for that channel was a history of Galway. And I talked to Jim O'Higgin and Jim is very much a historian of local uh, Galway. So I thought I should widen the search in terms of opening the debate in Ireland. So this is the reason why you're here today. We want to do a whistle-stop tour of Ireland, understanding the history of Ireland from as far back as you want to go until today. So I know we're trying to boil the ocean, so uh, let's start where you want to start. How do you, where do you want to go?
1: Oh, we can go back as early as you wish, like, but first humans would have came to Ireland, would have walked across because that was possible. The water was so shallow, they wouldn't have really, maybe kind of swam, but, but probably a lot of them were able to walk across to Ireland. From from, from, from Britain and from Europe. Cause the, the, wow. The, so, the water's so shallow. Yeah. Um, and possibly even connected to you, but, but, yeah. but probably very shallow water, okay. yes. Okay. So the First humans, you can go back to maybe even as early as 10,000 BC, but recognizably perhaps the Celts, a um, few hundred BC to maybe 8,000 a- 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 AD. Uh, but I suppose when we start to have more records, it's probably when the Roman Empire existed from the early centuries, the classical period, and how the Roman int- Empire interacted with Ireland. Mm-hmm. Ireland was part of the frontier region. You can look at different areas, whether it's Africa, Eastern Europe, Hungary, areas like that, also under the frontier regions. And it was all about the Roman world, how far would, Roman world would, had no ending, but Ireland was partly on the ending of that Roman world. So how did the Romans, whether it's the Romans, the English, how they regarded Irish, later on, Swedes regarded as the Finnish, always civilization against savagery. And Ireland was regarded as barbarian. But it's always the changes. You think about the Romans, you think about Normans, Vikings, Normans, English, Scots. Later on, immigrants coming into Ireland today. Always changing. And and the influence of that wider context is hugely important. And you can see that again from the early times, the Roman influence on Ireland. The Christianisation of Ireland. How does that happen? And it's clearly those that came from Roman world, Roman Britain. the case of Patrick or Palladius maybe he was a more important figure somebody we don't know as much about but he was sent by Pope Celestine to convert Irish believing in Christ so there was already Irish believing in Christ how did they come to believe in Christ maybe that was Patrick and others or maybe it was also that interaction between Ireland and the Roman world Roman Britain so we have some evidence even though Ireland of course wasn't conquered by um, the Roman Empire but you can see that interaction in terms of trading story from my youth, a straight road. That, was that a Roman world? You, Roman road? road. You come to the West, there's late, much less straight roads. Mm-hmm. So again, the interaction was much more obvious mm-hmm. and much more evident in the East and the South. I,
0: I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something about what, my friend Eugene Hamill from Dungannon. He says that the Irish must have been really good runners or very savage in order to get here. How accurate is that?
1: You could look at it like that, um, but they were always interacting with the wider world, with the Roman world, with then when the Vikings came, which, you know, the trade was always a very important, Ireland with Bristol. You -hmm. know, Dublin became a very populous, an important city, and trading with Bristol, for example. And you can see that later on in the 16th, 17th century as well. Those connections were always very important.
0: Yeah, and so I've heard that the capital of Ireland was actually um, Carrickfergus. Is that correct?
1: I'm not sure it was the capital, but it's certainly a very important location. Yeah. Um, Carrickfergus, Trim, Lim, um, John's Castle, Limerick. Um, well, a lot of these would have been uh, Normans. Mm. So Norman, the moving inland, But although Carrickfergus was obviously on the coast and an important castle, the importance of, uh, and Dublin Castle as well. But uh, so Dublin, Waterford, Wexford, Limerick were obviously Viking towns. Okay.
0: Uh, Let's go through chronologically as to where, like, for example, where the Normans come in. So,
1: Well, so again, the early evidence is um, how Ireland became Christian. And obviously that's a really important marker. Um, but there's the very little evidence of how oh, oh, absolutely that happened and who was passing and the importance of him. The only things we really know about Patrick is the two documents he left himself. His Confessio, Confession. And these documents are actually on, on confessio.ie. Wonderful documents. Another document. This is a count, of, a count of his life. And very frustratingly, Patrick doesn't leave any details, or very few details, about dates, place names, where he was, where he's from. He's from Bavarian Tiberiana. It's likely to be somewhere in Roman Britain, but we're not exactly sure uh where does he go in ireland likely to be located in the northeast but it could have been somewhere he went as far as anyone could go went further than anyone before it could have been somewhere in mayo we, we're not exactly sure but he's likely to be located in the northeast he's likely to be buried in Downpatrick, but we don't know for sure so this account of his life is really important and he he says something about committing this sin he doesn't say what that sin was early in his life it could have been just kissing somebody yeah. You know, but he is something that Made him the person who he was. Yeah. Really committed. This other document he wrote, letter to the soldiers of Croticus. Who's Croticus? He's likely to be a lord, perhaps some sort of pirate. But you know, he enslaved a lot of newly found Christians, and a lot of them probably Patrick himself converted. So he brought all these, captured them, like Patrick himself in his younger life, what became a slave. So again, these were brought to Roman Britain, uh, and here's Patrick giving out to this guy. And soldiers and excommunicating them. But what it highlights is lack of Patrick's power. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all this shows the change and that interaction again between Ireland and Roman Britain and Roman world. Becoming Christian was obviously really important. You look at the different figures. Prat- Patrick, how does he become so important? Those connections he had with the North and O'Neill, later on O'Neill. Mm-hmm. So that was important political. And religious, the, the connections, you go later on into the 19th century. The links between priest and patriot. Later on, church and state. Mm. So they were already very important in terms of how Ireland was being structured, informed the social, economic, political, cultural structures. Um, and who are the important figures ruling Ireland, governing Ireland? Um, O'Neill's were one of important in families. Later on, O'Neill's. And they were obviously very important until they O'Neill's and O'Donnell's left Ireland in the Mm. 17th century uh, with the flight of the earls. Mm. So how Ireland changed, that's the constant theme here. Changes all the time. You know, there was an attempt later on in the 20th century to think of Ireland as stable, to preserve rural Ireland. This flight from rural Ireland, huge emigration in the 1950s. And there was an attempt by a commission to view Ireland, make it stable, make rural Ireland stable. But that was really, that never existed. There was never a stable rural Ireland. People were always either coming in or, or, or leaving mm-hmm. or changing or moving from rural areas to urban areas. But at this point, of course, in the medieval, early modern, and well into the 20th century, Ireland was predominantly rural. Absolutely. Um, but that does in itself change. You go into the Vikings, the Vikings are invading, but then they start to settle. This is where the first towns, first urban areas. Normans are are better organised, they have better equipment, better weapons. Mm. They have more better ways of agriculture. So
0: so sorry, sorry to interrupt. So the Vikings, when did they come in?
1: Um, the first seem to invade Rattlin Island or um, on, on around Hote Rattlin Island, just off Antrim, mm-hmm. um, or or um, Hote uh, um, Lambeg Island, um, just in, or near Hote in Dublin, um, seven ninety five. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that and into the eighth century, they're still invading and they're still attacking, but in going to the certainly by the ninth century, they're they're starting to settle. And where are they coming from? They're coming from initially from the Scandinavia, later on maybe Denmark. So this is similar areas, but you can see the difference from Sweden and, and, and Denmark yeah. um, later on. Uh, and the importance, like Dublin is a Viking town. That's mm. what it is. And the amount of records we haven't, the amount of information we lost. Mm. Like it was it was terrible what happened when uh, Mary Robinson was a young woman or very successful woman at the time, but before she was president, trying to preserve this Viking heritage. That when it was lost, uh, when uh, the Dublin Corporation buildings were built on the site of, of Viking Dublin. But we do have a lot of evidence in terms of the, even books, even armour, games children played, uh, but churches as well. So the different figures that came in uh, that, that 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 made Dublin. And made so, so
0: we basically just built on top of this uh, exactly. heritage and lost yes. it all.
1: Oh RT God. archives are very good for all of this. You can look it up and how those attempts, um, Mary Robson and others, like a good historian at the time, FX Martin, mm. um, was trying to argue for the need to preserve all this.
0: So you have the Vikings invading, the Vikings settling, and then the Normans invading after that?
1: Yes, the Normans. So the Vikings from the 9th, 10th century and Christchurch was mm. originally built by a, 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 a Viking. You know, mm. So again, so... Um, the, the Normans came in 1169. They mm. came to my, my home, where I'm from, Wexford, Banno mm. Bay, uh, Bag and Bun, another name near this. Uh, but this was the reference in 1171. 71, that Ireland. This is where Ireland was a war. Ireland is lost and won. Mm.
0: So, so when, so wh- where did the Normans come from?
1: The Normans would have came from Wales, but originally, of course, Normans were Vikings. Mm. They came to Normandy in France, and that's because they became Normans. Mm. They extended their control in France. They came to um, um, England, and then they came to Wales. So they actually came from Wales. Much stronger, organized, mm. weapons, armor, mm. very difficult, on horseback. Mm. Irish weren't able to compete with this. And by by by, by, by the 12th century, they probably had the control of Ireland, about two-thirds of Ireland. Mm-hmm. So their, their, their ability to move from Wexford to Waterford to capture Dublin, well, of course, how they were initially came to Ireland was they were partly invited. Mm-hmm. And this is something that often happens. is a case of often Irish people fighting against each other. You go mm-hmm. back to again, even the Vikings. It's a civil war. Yeah. When Brian brew Brian was fighting against the Vikings, but he was also had Vikings on his side. And equally, there was Irish on, on the Vikings side, depending on where you're located. So I'm seeing I'm seeing
0: here that the conversations I've had in the past where people talk about 800 years of oppression from the English so that means that's inaccurate.
1: Well it's you could that's, that's a traditional view of of how history but yeah I, I would it's much more complicated than that. You you know um, the people that are coming in all the time were were adapting Changing their life, you know, but others would be retained very tradition, very new ways. Um, I suppose what where a lot of this really originates from in some, well, you can go back to Normans, uh, but but from the fourteenth century, there is a resurgence of Irish, Gaelic Irish, and also the Norman areas were badly affected, especially by things like the Black Death, mm-hmm. that hit towns and cities very badly. The towns and cities tended to be more likely to be in the east and south, more likely to be Normans. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, though, you had a resurgence of Irish, um, but there were, you know, a lot of the time. It's not a case of Irish against English; mm-hmm. it's against it's against the lords against each other. Mm-hmm. There was very rarely a high king in Ireland, for example. So they're they're they're, they're fighting against each other, um, in many ways, you go into the 16th century. All it's the same things happen in happening into in England, Scotland, and and Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, what becomes, in the 17th century, the War of Three Kingdoms, the three kingdoms being England, Scotland and Ireland. It was a, from Henry VIII's time, or a little bit earlier, Henry VIII was trying to extend his control. Similar things are happening throughout Europe, through France, Spain, whoever the local strongest lord was, trying to extend his control, his or her control, over a larger area. How is that person going to do that? Have a bigger army. How they're going to pay for that? Have greater taxation. Those countries that were successful had good, effective bureaucracies and taxation systems. Less successful, for example, in Spain. Spain got all this wealth from the New World, uh, but wasn't didn't create a really effective central structure or taxation system. And you can see the regional, national differences within Spain compared to a much more effective state in France, for example. Mm-hmm but france probably didn't give enough didn't give enough uh, mechanisms for to address grievances um, and that's what happened with the french revolution you mm-hmm. in some ways britain was a more successful state but it wasn't in the 17th century of course mm-hmm. then there's no mechanisms to address grievances mm-hmm. and uh, scotland acted presbyterians were really unhappy and presbyterian being the national religion of Scotland really unhappy with the attempts by Charles I to extend his control impose his authority impose the authority of the anglican church a different it's a protestant church they're all protestants but they're a different protestant church and this this really mattered at this time in england the puritans are emerging cuz they're not happy as well mm-hmm. and they're stricter protestants and this is where cromwell comes from Mm-hmm. Cromwell's a Puritan, strict Protestant, strict Protestant views. But he's not happy with this centralising tendency from Charles I, similarly. And the Puritans also want a greater voice for Parliament. Mm-hmm. And you can see who's voting for these things. Royalists tend to be more likely the higher noble, the established church, the Anglican church, and maybe those really wealthy. Um, the, the Puritans are like likely to be more urban-based, those that are slightly lower class, and, angry at the nobility, because they can't get any further. Mm-hmm. For Ireland, Ireland remains Catholic. What's on surprising in some ways, I <laughs> you could say, all the difficulties, and there was huge difficulties, don't so understate them for a second, but what there is on what's surprising in some ways, there wasn't really an attempt to impose the Protestant religion on Ireland. Now, there's different reasons for that, of course. Ireland, and this time, Speak, spoke a different language. So what era is this we're talking about? We're talking about the Reformation. We're talking about the 16th century. Into the 17th century. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at something like the 1652, the active settlement of Ireland. Yeah. Um, this is when the British conquest really does happen. You Ireland moves from before the Battle of Kinsale in 1603, or late 16th century, early 17th century, before the plantations. There, you're talking about 90% of land being owned by Catholics. By the end of the 18th century, about five percent of land was owned by Catholics. Wow. How does that happen? Why does it happen? You're talking about this British conquest. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of the important acts was the Act of Settlement in 1652, but it's it's a, it's a process. The plantations were obviously hugely. So explain what the
0: plantations are, and just thinking about people who are not from Ireland who who, who um, are young as well. So yeah.
1: Of course, of course. Um, this is again goes back to me mentioned the O'Neills and O'Donnells, mm. really important Irish families. In the 16th century, there was an attempt by the crown. How does the crown, how does an important lord try to impose his or her authority, a king or queen, his or her authority on a particular area? Trying to extend, trying to ensure laws are centralised, that they're English laws, mm-hmm. that they're, they're imposing the English laws, English religion, English language. They're trying to impose on different lords. Initially, there was an attempt to do it in a more conciliatory way. Literally, what this was called surrender and regrant in the 16th century. So the lords, like O'Neill's O'Neill did this. Mm-hmm. He surrendered his title. So
0: O'Neill's obviously an Irish guy, and uh, in Tyrone, in, in Thur- the north yeah, of yeah. Ireland. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, I, I actually have ancestors uh, called O'Neill's, But carry on, yeah.
1: No, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, so they actually he, like Hugh O'Neill. I'm talking about. Hugh. Yeah, Hugh O'Neill and Hugh O'Donnell. These were the two that. Hugh O'Neill was a brilliant politician. He could play it either any way he wanted. He could be an Irish lord, acting Catholic, attending Easter services. But he was also raised in the Pale. The Pale is the most English area of Ireland, around Dublin. This is the area that retained, remained British, remained English, I should say. Britain doesn't exactly exist until 1630. Uh, uh, But remained English. So he was able to play it in England. He was actually he would attend with the governor Protestant services, Mm -hmm. and he could also communicate with crown officials, with the queen. But what he did, he surrendered his title. He surrendered his title as an Irish lord, but then was regranted his title by the crown, by the British monarch, and by Queen Elizabeth as an English lord. Mm -hmm. So he's saying he's going to be an English lord, but what he became? Why does he then act? Why does he do this nine years war, Battle of Kinsale, all that sixteen oh three? It's a big gamble. Mm. But what he saw and what he's fearful of, areas like Monaghan and Fermanagh, these areas that extension of the crown, extension of the Brit, of the like. Oh, O'Neill would act with the English he he sent English Spanish soldiers that came over from with the Spanish Armada, ended up landing in Ireland. He passed them over to the Pale. So he would act on the authority on the behalf of the Crown, on mm-hmm. some cases. And then he, he fights against the Crown. Mm-hmm. But what he was fearful of again is this ex- extension of English control. Mm-hmm. This excursion ex- um, um, extension of English laws English control, English power. And what was his motive to
0: pass people to
1: to the peel would this protect himself? That he was he was acting as the most powerful. He was making sure this area was stable, secure. But he would also curry favor with the crown.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So that was important. The
0: crown. So do you think he was more? Um, I mean, we're all selfish individuals in terms of trying to stay alive. But his motives was more like. Um, Trying to increase the power of Ireland, or 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 incre- or just stay alive,
1: stay alive, probably fundamentally, but but more his own power, I would say,
0: his own personal power, absolutely, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Like, you could look, you could go back earlier to Fitzgeralds. Mm. Fitzgeralds were even there, but were located in Kildare. Mm. Kildare is hugely important area. You can go back to Bridget. Bridget arguably should be the patron saint of Ir- Ireland, not Patrick. Patrick becomes the patron saint because of O'Neill's. Mm-hmm. That connection with Armagh. Mm-hmm. But, but why, why, why do you say Bridget
0: should be the, the patron saint of Ireland? I've heard uh, many, this before, so I'm, I'm interested what to hear what you've got to say about that.
1: <laughs> well, she's much nicer for a start. <laughs> uh, well, be, be fair to Patrick. It's the myth of Patrick. That uh-huh. we have come to believe. What you should do is read these original documents by Patrick. Patrick in these original documents, the Confessio, the letter to soldiers of Craticus He's a very modest individual, really. He's very humble. But he skimmed all this power, all this ability by God. Uh-huh. They're amazing documents. They're fascinating. But in this myth, what became the, known as the Book of Armagh in the 9th century, he's smiting all these uh, terrible people, these Druids, that they're not Willing to convert to the real true God. Mm. But he's he's not really acting like that in, the, in, in, the, in, the in his own words. Yeah, yeah. Um, But he is... What Arma had to do, it goes back to Palladius. We have these dates for Palladius. Who is Palladius? They, they had to come to a solution. So they basically... This year 432. We have no idea when Patrick existed, really. It's mm. likely to be in the 5th century. But this year 432 is used by Arma. Because there's evidence for a figure, Palladius, coming in 431. So it was a way to erase Palladius, to deal with this guy, Palladius, and basically conflate Palladius and Patrick as one person.
0: Mm. Right. And tell me more about
1: Bridget. Bridget, yes. Well, she's much nicer. She actually, instead of smiting all these people like Patrick and killing them and letting rocks fall on their heads and stuff like that, um, Bridget actually made ways to reconcile. Work together and actually make a solution that didn't involve killing people. And she was interested in nature. She was much, and also Kildare was actually really important at this time. Mm. That's what's also significant. Her abbey and the church. And that's it's likely early forms of Christians, early were around that area in the south, again in the east. Again, that's Roman influence. The northeast was much less influence of those that came from elsewhere because it's very understandable the east and the south is much closer to normandy is much closer to wales if so of course they would come more likely to come into the east and the south but Ulster and the O'Neills were always also very effective very strong at resisting the one area the vikings didn't really get into was in the northeast because the Ula ulla resisted they slaughtered the heathens this is the heathens the vikings before they converted to christianity So Bridget's just a nicer figure in that sense. But Mm. again, it's about politics, that conflation between politics and religion. And that's why Arma and Patrick became the most important.
0: And talk a little bit about um, the chieftains and talk a little bit about the high kings.
1: Well, all these families were really important and they're a very hierarchical structure. Um, in terms of the chieftain, the Ola, uh, and Tuhas, and how how they were, uh, how many people actually lived in Ireland at this point? Some we don't really have the f- full knowledge. We have a lot of different um, in, um, places where they would have lived, but but it's it's um, they were all probably looking after their own interests, and they were all often having raids on each other and acting against each other. So were they were they
0: coexisting at the same time?
1: That's probably changed with the Normans as they came into Ireland in the 12th century, uh, into the 13th century. Then it became a, uh, moved into a more feudal society and more centralized structures and hierarchical structures. They were always hierarchical. I don't want to overstate this, but there was a sense of more egalitarian society in, in, in earlier times in Ireland. Maybe there could be more possibilities for mobility. You know, even things like uh, to, could young women live outside of the Tuha They were uh, maybe bringing cows up to the uplands and then bring them back. Now that's in one sense actually very dangerous because they were living away from the, their community and could be targeted and victims of by somebody else or even animals. Uh, but but it did give them a certain mobility. But again, and even in terms of early early Irish law, could they have actually have laws in terms of women having power to divorce and things like that? Uh, but. Later on, when it becomes much more strictly controlled in terms of by the lord, the lords becoming much more important and much more. Uh, and in, you can see this really in the, in the early modern period, and even stronger again. Uh, but a lot of that really changes in the east and the south. Centralised struggle, the need for trade, the need to be able to trade with different, uh, with Britain, for example. So
0: who did the lords support to? <sighs>
1: Sometimes only themselves, but as time goes on, I suppose the change, the real change, is in the sixteenth century. That's when Henry VIII he starts, and and part of the reason is, of course, with the Reformation. He, but he's what he's really doing is just trying to extend his own control. Mm -hmm. He's trying to extend his own control in England. So his
0: religion and his language and it was um, uh, laws.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's that's his main impact in Ireland.
1: Um, Yes. But uh, in terms of the Reformation, Ireland obviously remained predominantly Catholic. So there wasn't re- re- there was some attempt, but a limited attempt when it comes down to to, right. to change Ireland's religion. Where Ireland's religion changes is really with the plantations. Yeah. When I talked about surrender and regrant in the 16th century being a conciliatory yeah. policy in some ways, trying to get the lords' agreement, even if that's an unequal power structure um, relationship in some ways. But with the plantation, it's much more coercion. So
0: the plantation is just planting uh, big pockets of people in Ireland, and it's coming from England mostly.
1: England and Scotland, but English settlers, English and Scottish settlers, English and Scottish laws, English and Scottish religion, Protestant
0: religion. In terms of numbers of people coming across, do we have any idea?
1: Maybe the tens of thousands, something like that, but... (sighs) That's what's unusual about the plantation. Like, there was attempts to plantation. This was a strategy that was used by early modern governments in some ways. And even you can see the people from England going to America. Like, that's a form of plantation as well. Yeah, yeah. But there was other plantations in Ireland in the 16th century, in Leish Offaly, you know, Kings and Queens yeah. ca- County. Um, but that was less successful. Equally, in Desmond, in Munster, when there was a revolution against, by the Earl of Desmond against what he described Elizabeth as the she-tyrant. Because she was Protestant, she's heretic, um, and he needs to uh, establish established the Catholic Church. This is, again, is he really believing this? Similarly with O'Neill, or is it just a newfound discovery in yeah. some ways? Uh, in terms of the importance of religion uh, and politics but the plantation
0: of ulster is the most successful one the planting exactly. so so why why is that i mean ireland or sorry northern ireland the north of ireland we let's let's use that term because it is the north part of ireland at that stage it was um the most arguably, the most irish because you had the O'Neills, you had the o'donnells and then all of a sudden boom it becomes a plantation sta- area of of ireland so how do you how do you um, explain that?
1: The success was partly because they had enough settlers. They didn't have enough settlers in Desmond in Munster or and Offaly. In Ulster, they had more settlers, mm-hmm. and they had a very—it transforms the economy and society, and physically changes the the infrastructure. How it, how Ulster looks now? You have towns, you have urban areas, you have buildings, structures, manor houses, church buildings, and they're bringing in different people, different language, English language instead of the Irish language, different religion, Protestant religion, and laws, English laws. And they're trying to make sure these these areas are becoming more civil against the savage Irish. But the problem was, it's much more successful, yes, but it's not a complete success. They didn't have enough people. And that's where the Irish had to come back. Now, the Irish sometimes would have been put on the worst lands, the poorest lands, and paying higher rents. But they, de- they needed the Irish to continue. Like, all the time, the Irish stayed on these lands. Even when they're being not owning these lands anymore, they're still staying on the lands as tenant farmers. But the difference in Ulster is a mixed, a divided population between Protestant and Catholic, between those that are seeing themselves as English and Scottish and those that are seeing themselves as Irish.
0: And what year was the plantation of Ulster?
1: 1609. Okay.
0: So then we move forward and... Um, in term, It's funny, whenever you're talking about Whenever you're talking about these Towns that are popping up I'm thinking about where I come from in South Derry um, A small town Called Dripperstown And it has the widest street That you, mm. uh, you know, it's brilliant Because you can park a car uh, Pointing in towards the houses And there's still enough room For two cars to pass through the middle of the street So it was People look at that Still today, and go what a whoever whoever designed this town had a bit of foresight in terms of thinking about cars and and carriages and so on. Yeah,
1: they're very well planned, and you can see the difference between the northeast, but to some extent in the east and south is again those influences, whether it's the Romans, the Vikings, and um, the the Normans, and then of course the English and Scottish from the sixteenth and seventeenth century, and um, that better's. Well, better, but yeah, that more planned, um, mm-hmm. wider streets, bigger houses. In the West you'd have less than that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is a diff- very different look and physical um, landscape.
0: I mentioned Drupastown and where I come from is arguably where language, the Gaelic language died out the last because we are so close to the Sperrin Mountains. Mm-hmm. And my great-grandfather, my grandfather's brother, he actually... Transcribed old stories from the older women. Actually, um, he would go round to their houses and transcribe their stories as Gaelic. Mm. And this is uh, apparently one of the last documents of his people speaking Gaelic as the first language. By the way, those those records are were published by uh, by Ail Cannon as a, as a book, and um, the those records are now in the National Archives in Dublin. So the um, in terms of um, the language how did they actually succeed in wiping out the English language so successfully
1: the, the Irish language well it, it, I, in some areas it probably would have lasted into maybe even into the 20th century but um, there's different reasons but a lot of this goes back into goes to the 19th century that change that happens in terms of um, education schools primary schools later on secondary schools and language that was these are now state schools instead of being private education Yes, the institutions are either the Catholic Church and Protestant Church who are running them, but this the language through which the education was being taught is now the English language rather than the Irish language. But there's a, I suppose there's other reasons as well. You know, In the 19th century especially, if you're less likely, which you were in many cases, to live in Ireland, was the Irish language actually useful? And if you're going to likely to be emigrate, and there's some, maybe as many as three quarters of people that are living in Ireland are now actually living in America, if you follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irish, Ireland today has a diaspora of 80 million people. That's the 19th century. You're leaving Ireland, Irish is obviously much less useful. English is much more likely to be useful. Now, some people obviously who left did speak Irish, but increasingly obviously more likely to speak English. Um, so education has a part to play, but also the language of business, politics, um, wider society increasingly became English and so, much more useful. So is
0: a, it's more carrot than stick and... Yeah. I, my question is, was there a stick? Do, were people locked up for speaking Gaelic, for example? Do we know?
1: I don't think they were necessarily locked up, but the language mm. through which everything was done was English. So, you know, you can still look at that as the stick. you know, in terms of not uh, protecting, not facilitating mm. exchange. Law was done through English. But there was uh, definitely a,
0: a desire for the Irish people to learn uh, English because, uh, as you say, that's a, that's if they're going to move abroad, that's the language that they needed
1: desire might be bit too strong a way but it was it was the reality that they faced, you know, in many okay. cases that yeah. they, they w- would, that this was the more useful language, more, much more important language right. um, but in many cases people would still wanted to speak Irish and would have still spoken, Especially in areas in the West right. or in areas, certain pockets in the northeast, it's very interesting, somebody like you think later on Ernest Blight, he's, he talks about he's a very important figure in Irish nationalism he, he's from Antrim other figures from the Northies became very much involved in Sinn Féin later on in terms of the nationalist movement, the Irish Revolution. But Ernest Blight was the Minister for Finance in the 1920s. But he himself learned Irish. And it, But he says, he talks about in the 18th century, you think talking about the late 18th century, this attempt to unite Irishmen, the society of united Irishmen. A figure like Theobald Tone was one of the driver forces in terms of the, the, what became the Irish Revolution. Initially all about reform, but Blight, going back to Blight, he talks about, like, this all starts, really, in the Northeast. Mm. As Presbyterians were also discriminated against, they could not hold office. Catholics couldn't hold office. Also, the Catholics could not vote. They received the right to vote and to bear arms, to to be able to have weapons in 1792. This goes back to the penal laws. This is partly what you're talking about from the late 17th century, in the 18th century. How much were Catholics discriminated against? And they were, absolutely. They couldn't hold office. They couldn't vote. They couldn't have a horse over five pounds. They couldn't leave land to their own Catholics. But... You know, the question follows, why do Catholics still exist? Of course they still exist. So if these laws were completely enforced, arguably Catholics wouldn't have complete, continued to exist. Um, but you, Catholics found ways to overcome these, but also perhaps the laws weren't always completely enforced. And, you know, um, so go back, back to Ernest Blythe, But he talked about, in the late 18th century, Presbyterians being able to speak Irish. Mm. And that is part of how Irish nationalism emerges. Now, maybe you can overstate that. Maybe there are some experiences close to his own family or his own area that that did happen. He has his own uh, biography. That he talks about all this. Uh, but there are still areas in Ulster, in Northern Ireland today, that are very keen on the Irish language. And even unionist figures are you know, involved mm. in this. So that they do still exist.
0: Yep. My, my, my father is a, a gilligore and he and he and he keeps talking about uh, how the Presbyterians, whenever they learned Gaelic, that's whenever it started getting documented, and uh, they were great proponents of the language mm-hmm. and of music and of the culture, mm-hmm. because um, they were being discriminated against, and uh, they were they were quite more organised comparatively. One could argue. Let's talk about the famine then, and how uh, how that all affected Ireland, because what was the what was the pop- First of all, what was the year? the early years and what was the reasons and what were the numbers that's what I'm interested they found in. broadly
1: 1845 to 1849 or up to 1851 1852 you can still see problems up to that and um, long but you look at the population that's a, that's an important you go back to 1700 population of Ireland is 2 million by 1800 it's about 4.5 million see how much it's increasing by 1845 it's 8.5 million you go forward 1911 it's around about 4.4 4 million so um, during the famine itself, about one million people emigrated, and another million died. So that's a big drop of about two million in a, in a space of less than ten years.
0: How, uh, how Sorry, I'm interrupting, but I've heard bigger numbers. So how you get
1: different numbers in different places? So, so, so how accurate are these numbers? Are we can't be sure. That's mm. that's, that's 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 the truth. Uh, but certainly there was a lot of people who died, a lot of people who left. And it left a legacy in terms of the changes, in terms of people leaving to people needing more money, bigger land, more land. You need maybe 30 acres of land to be able to survive, to provide for yourself and your family. Some of these things are changing already before the famine. So you can look at the, the famine makes a big impact. But things like, I suppose, emigration, the population change from, what well, I said, 1,800, 4.5 million to 8.5 million. How does that happen? potatoes were very nutritious you know we've even got records from the late 18th century saying the irish people are beautiful and tall but we're talking about people serving in that british army they were seem to be taller than some of their counterparts or irish prostitutes actually were taller irish women were taller than some of the women in for example in in mediterranean countries so we have some records that show that potatoes are very nutritious maybe they're better food than perhaps some people that were living in mediterranean countries but the problem, of course, with any food source, if, if, if it fails, and it fails in successive years, and that's, of course, what happens in 1845, 1846, and the continued problems after that. And what happened? Why did it fail? It, well, it was, uh, it was a blight. It, uh, it was uh, um, um, spread by the wind. Uh, natural causes that, you know, uh, and these, there had been potato failures previously. But, but, but it failed successive years. It failed first in 1845, and then it failed in 1846. It didn't fail in 1847. The problem in 1847, which was actually the worst year of the famine, um, problem was there wasn't as many seeds planted. Because some people literally ate the seeds because they had no food. But also, um, um, there were, people were really struggling. Um, so 1847 came the worst year of the famine. How does all this... I suppose you think about responses... Um, and you can think about the British government's response. Initially, Prime Minister Robert Peel, the conservatives, the Tories, you could make a case that they actually made a a, a, a reasonable attempt to respond. They imported Indian maize, one hundred thousand pounds. So, and then that first year, there wasn't you know excessive mortality, or or you know it could, it became much worse later on. The change of government that was a huge problem. Lord John Russell. The Whig government, later on we talk about basically effectively becoming the Liberals. The Whig government, a policy, a view, laissez-faire. You shouldn't interfere in the economy or the society. And these were widespread views. You know, this is the type type of view that was held broadly among politicians, among wider society, among the civil service. Um, They did have certain responses they stopped importing as much food but there is evidence to show that there's more food imported than food actually exported and that's important to say that but could they have done more as the famine goes on absolutely they did make some responses in terms of public works in terms of especially soup kitchens in 1847 there was the quakers particularly were providing soup kitchens and there was you know evidence that could this work and the the government itself provided some of these soup kitchens in 1847 and they fed as many as 3 million people on a daily basis. That's a serious organizational and costs a lot of money. Mm. But it wasn't seen as a long term solution by the government. Partly seen as too much money being spent on this. But wider view again, laissez faire, you shouldn't interfere in the market, the market should rule. We have some similar attitudes even today in terms of how governments should act. But you also have things like famine fatigue. The longer this goes on, people are less willing to be proactive or respond. To crisis, and we have similar problems even today. But the wider view was, that was held was property, Irish property, should pay for Irish poverty. Mm-hmm. And of course, in those areas that were worse affected, the landlords probably were, they were in certain cases, in certain individuals, were seriously in debt. Now, it's all relative, of course. Landlords had a lot more money than a very low labor who had nothing at all. Mm-hmm. But they had no rents coming in. And some landlords did respond. You can think of... Sly- what's interesting about it is the landlords that did respond. You could think of Gore Boot and Sligo, or P- Lord Palmerston. He was foreign secretary at the time. So he knows what's going on. Gore Boot as well. And he provided a lot of money from his own income to try to provide food. Later on, Gore Boot and Palmerston are involved in making sure that assisted emigration. People that leave try to provide an alternative to them. You could look at it in a benign way, an alternative, better way of life, a better opportunities in North America particularly, um, and facilitating that. But you could also look, there was accounts of Irish people arriving with no clothes at all. Mm. You know, So so is it really helping them, or are they other, more and more... In a different way, are they just doing this for their own interests in terms of clearing estates that are, in a view that's being held, they're overpopulated, they're not providing a return? So so there's different motivations for all this. But the areas in Sligo, you could say, you know, during the Irish Revolution, a lot of these big houses, landlord lives, remain. You look in Galway, a lot of them were destroyed during the Irish Revolution. So that legacy. What really happens, I suppose, in terms of the 19th century, It becomes politics and society and economy becomes a zero-sum game. We talked about the Presbyterians. What happened to the Presbyterians in the 19th century? You know, in terms of Protestants' outlook, and a lot of this follows from 1798, how that demands society of united Irishmen, how it became movement from reform to revolution. And it was an attempt to unite Irishmen, but all Irishmen, you'd have to have any one group having the same objectives, same motivations. Within Catholics, for example, you'd have the Society of United Irishmen, but you also had the Catholic defenders. And they might have different motivations, what they want. United Irishmen have this view of trying to bring people together, trying to have a better society. Ireland defining itself. Catholic defenders might want to kick the Protestants off the land, going back to the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, that's, I'm simplifying a little bit, yeah, because yeah, that's not yeah. always true. But you have defenders, society united, you know, but you also have emerging the people-day the Orange Order, mm. protecting interests, Orange or, interests, unionist interests, defending the Protestant way of life. That also emerges in this period, 1795. What happens with 1798, as the rebellion in certain cases, and for example, Wexford, it becomes very sectarian. You know, atrocities were committed on both sides, no question about it. And the state actions obviously fed into a lot of this, and the state acting in a way... You know, you, you asked the question earlier on about 800 years and all that. And you can point to different things. You can point to Cromwell. Does he do things that he wouldn't have done in Ireland, in England or Scotland, for example? Or what happens in 1798, the action of the state? But you also have to action, ask the question, why does the state then act in these ways? During 1798, as many as twenty five to 30,000 people were killed. Part of the reason goes back to the 17th century, goes back to the late 19th century, the fear of the state that... Ireland could be used as a basis for of, of, of invasion. Invading England.
0: And that's Ireland's weakness.
1: Ireland's weakness. It has to be prevented as a base for in invasion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether it's by Spain in the 16th century. Spain coming over to help the O'Neill's and O'Donnell's. Battle of Kinsale. All that. Finally, obviously being defeated. Doesn't work out. France was the country they were looking to in 1798. In the 20th century, perhaps more controversially, Germany is the one. Whoever England's enemy is, is Ireland's friend.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: so Ireland could not be in the English mind, in the British mind, a base to invade England, to invade Britain. yeah, the back door. back door.
0: So let's go back to the numbers of the famine. Um, where did they go?
1: The majority would have went to North America. Obviously, uh, well, they would initially probably went to England. Mm-hmm. Liverpool, some of them remained in England, and, and, the, and Liverpool became very much an Irish city in that sense. Uh, but often, Liverpool was seen as a base to go further and to go to North America.
0: So, does that explain why many movies that we watch today have got Irish connections? I'm thinking about Titanic. Well, Titanic's a, a silly example because the boat was bloody made in Belfast. But um, you have American presidential candidates, a lot of them claim to be Irish. Um, from Barack Obama to Ronald Reagan to JFK, etc. So it's to galvanize that Irish support. Is that the reason why, and so many of them have got ancestry, is it linked to the famine?
1: Absolutely, and there's large Irish communities um, in different areas, in Australia as well, but further you go, of course, assisted immigration was more important. The importance of America... People were already leaving from 1815, especially before the famine, 1815 to 1845. A lot of people start. About 1.5 million Catholics would have left for, for maybe Northern America from Ireland. So you had what becomes networks of support chain migration to facilitate further migration. And that's what so happens in the during the famine and after the famine. But what you're referring to Irish-American priest, presidents, that's only becomes a thing after John F. Kennedy. Before that, some, you can think of somebody like James Buchanan. There, there was a mural in 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 in, in Ulster about James Buchanan talking about his Ulster Scots blood. Mm-hmm. President Wilson, he was no interest in Ireland whatsoever. He was also from Ulster Scots background.
0: So what happened with JFK? Why why was this the turning point?
1: He was Catholic, and this is a big moment in American politics and for Ireland as well. By by by, by, by um, con, as a consequence. Like Irish-American Catholic becoming present Because before this, you go back to the 19th century, a lot of Irish people were discriminated against. No Catholic, no Irish, no black, no dog. You know, mm. there, you did have some signs like that. As time went on, partly by the sheer scale of numbers, mm. it became easier for Irish people to do better or a generation or two. Kennedy's is a case in point, you know, that they would have left, they wouldn't have had that much money, but they started getting on better. As you get on better, you maybe move to the suburbs, you become more successful in business and obviously Kennedy's become really successful. And John F. Kennedy's father was really successful a businessman and also an ambassador to the UK in during World War II. So before this, you know the idea of uh, again, I'm simplifying it a little bit to extent, but white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You know this was, so a Catholic. Why would you not elect a Catholic? Would a Catholic be dictated to? By the Pope. And that uh, John F. Kennedy was asked that question during... And he said, no, I'm not going to listen to the Pope. Mm. But, you know, do you see how this is also reflecting so what's he, going on in Ireland as well?
0: So he's balancing, you know, <sighs> I've got to attract the Irish votes, but I've also got to attract the people who, who are the sceptics.
1: How... how Was Kennedy actually any, really interested in Ireland? Mm. Well, well,
0: I would say... Yeah, and the reason why I say yeah is because he visited Galway, and the, and I interviewed uh, Pam Finn, who made a movie on um, his visit to Galway, and I asked her why why did he come to Galway? Like there was no connection here. She says because he wanted to visit the place where I Gil- Giltark area, where Gaelic was spoken as a as a first language. So, so um, I I get in her side of the story. So maybe maybe there's another side.
1: No, no, From a personal view, I do think he probably had a genuine interest. And he came to Ireland before this as well. So it's not just when he was president. Um, and that part of his family background, Irish America, was an important part of of, of Irish American family. So, uh, but it's also to carry Irish American votes, you know, and, and he would have been very realistic in where American interests lay, you know. And John Sean Lamass was also very realistic. Lamass and the Irish government chose not to ask um, President Kennedy help to try to end partition. Mm-hmm. You know, was it in Americans' interests? Equally, when you go back to President Wilson, was it in Americans' interests to try to persuade um, during the time of the tra- Paris, the Treaty of Versailles, the idea of self determination? Ireland should be self determined, should have be independent. Mm-hmm. Is Britain interested in that? Mm-hmm. Is Britain interested in ending partition? American presidents aren't going to act unless it feels in, the, their, in their interests. So what happens after this is fascinating. You think of Ireland today, and a, a huge influence going just, a lot of these changes happens from the 1950s. Ireland, in some ways, joining the international world. We don't want to overstate that, but there is a, um, a a change from the interwar period, even though Ireland's a member of the League of Nations in that period, but also but much more proactive, much more positive now it took takes time to be more positive late 50s early 60s Ireland applies for membership of the European Economic Community becomes a member of the European Union in 1973 becomes a member of the United Nations in 1955 but more positive more proactive in these different international bodies but it takes longer and a huge figure usually important figure in a lot of this in the period of the night during the troubles John Hume convincing Irish America of a different path instead of this is all you know obviously the troubles affects everything from the late 60s into for the next 25 years or more in terms of the violence that was happening in Northern Ireland. but John Humes attempts to try to reconcile the different communities, try to advocate for peace, mm. try to in, in influence Irish America and congressmen and women and our, our, and American presidents that you should take an active interest in Ireland mm-hmm. and not just side with Brit- Britain. In terms of what way things should be, mm-hmm. that's a uh, President Clinton doesn't actually have any Irish connection, but he took such an active interest in Ireland.
0: Oh, what was in what? what why did Clinton? I mean, obviously, he's a vote winner, but but once he was in power, so why did he get so involved in the Northern Ireland peace process?
1: That's a good question. I um, I think Hume. A lot of it goes back to John Hume, um, mm. but you know, you also you have to give these he and others, a genuine credit in terms of, you know, taking an active interest in a problem that needed to be addressed. And he would have seen it as in their interest to address this, to try to have something that, yes, is also a, a vote winner, but, you know, to to, cre- to cre- create a solution to a real problem, a problem and divisions that have been going back for a very long time. Hmm. Uh, and they would have recognized that. Like, Clinton acted, in a way, to give Jerry Adams the president of Sinn Féin, uh, the figure that was actively involved in the Sinn Féin IRA movement, obviously, and would have defended a lot of the IRA actions, but give him a visa Mm -hmm. to enter America. He did so against his own advice of his own administration to the horror of the British government and the unionist community. Mm -hmm. And... A lot of scepticism and opposition even from the Irish government. It was John Hume was the one who advocated that. And he went with Hume's advice against everyone else's advice. Hmm. Thankfully, it worked out. But it might not have worked out, you know.
0: We've talked a fair bit about this in the other channel, the Galway podcast. Uh, There's an episode called Understanding Northern Ireland, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And I mentioned there that... um, John Hume was a personal friend of my father. my father's uh, helped him start up the s d l p and i would I would have talked to my father a fair deal of- during this whole period and i and I kept saying the same thing: John Hume's driving the bus, everybody else's passengers, and you know it it sounds like you're 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 subscribing to that notion,
1: yeah, well. It's- <laughs> And you could be critical of that too. Like, he didn't include people like Miss Mallon necessarily on what he was doing. And it was... Well, he was his deputy. He was his deputy. Yeah. And... And you could say, you know, look at where the DLP are today in terms of politics. You know, did should Hume have taken more of an active interest in his own party, in the welfare of his own party? I say no. Than, I say no. <laughs> I
0: think he, he was the ultimate politician. He did what was right for the people and not what was right for the party. And that's where parties are, are feeling so much in, in today's society. But, yeah, sorry, I interrupted No, you.
1: no, no. But uh, Seamus Mann would agree that peace is a greater good. So he would ultimately, you know, and others... It's not just, you know, no one can do anything on their own. But, mm-hmm. you know, he is hugely important, again, in convincing a lot of Irish Americans. Because you think of the early years of the Troubles, especially. Uh, no Aid. Huge amount of money was being spent by Irish, from the Irish American community. Not just in the early years of Troubles, but that was particularly important. Because without guns, weapons, the IRA are nowhere. Mm-hmm. Where did they get these guns and weapons? Mm-hmm. They get a lot of money from Irish America. And that's the reality. But how does that story change instead of supporting the IRA and their campaign of violence to convince the IRA the need to have peace Mm -hmm. and have a ceasefire and to engage fully in politics? Now, it's a process. There's also obviously movement and Adams and McGuinness are important in that process as well. But you can also be critical of how long all this took. Mm -hmm. Now, you can also say that maybe it had to take that long to bring all these different individuals but there was always an alternative, and Hume was offering that alternative for a long time, and he was steadfast in that commitment, and that was a very good communicator.
0: Yeah, I think I think also um, th- there were there was a perfect storm of personalities as well, because mm-hmm. you had Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Jerry Adams, John Hume, David Trimble, and they were all in. They're quite, they're quite young, actually, in terms of you know, as politicians go, sometimes. And it was a perfect storm in that they all came together, and there was a notion that there was the winds of change under their wings, and they could feel that. Mm -hmm. There's a fantastic series uh, uh, podcast podcast series by Bertie Ahern where he talks about all of this. He revisits his. Uh, personalities 25 years on Also there's, a, and the rest is politics With with uh, Roy Stewart interviewing um, Alistair Campbell And he talks about that You know, a scenario where They, were, they all felt that there was, there was A wind here and they could take it And they were, the le- in terms of the election Cycles, they all married up quite well In terms of there's no there was, They weren't electioneering for their next uh, You know, big win or whatever So w- w- let's talk very and I don't want to talk too long about the Northern Ireland situation because we covered it so much but Mm -hmm. let's talk a bit about how because we talk about the troubles when did it start when did it finish (laughs) I say that with some skepticism because I'm from there but uh yeah so just a very quick whistle stop over this because I'm thinking about your time as well
1: no yeah Uh um start well when exactly start you could look at different really good website caim.ac.uk and that's chronicles the troubles in a really good way and even the background to the troubles uh, but late 60s 69 you could see as a kind of a starting point point. Um, of emergence of the civil rights movement hugely important part of this different marches and how the authorities came down on that and emergence even before this of the loyalist forces in terms of their fears, what the civil rights movements signifies, even before this, the Masse, Sean Masse, the Irish T. and Terence O'Neill, when they meet in 1965, the fears of what do they want? Where is this all leading? Will it lead to a United Ireland? But it is a period of 25 years. But there was already different views, and you know the Irish government is also involved in these moves. Other parts of the British government are also involved in these moves in terms of Sunningdale. It's obviously an important state. The, you could, you know, Sean Misman was the one who said the Good Friday Agreement is, Sun, is Sunningdale for slow learners. Um, now, the Good Friday Agreement has much more to it than just Sunningdale. But that element is crucial power sharing, mm-hmm. power sharing between nationals and unions. But there was different agreements over it, uh, especially from the 1980s. And that attempt to bring Sinn Fein. In from the cold to bring about peace, um, whether it goes hunger strikes are the hugely important moment.
0: So, what what caused even the troubles to happen?
1: <sighs> um, <laughs> I'm asking this question.
0: I, I feel like uh, sometimes I might be even better equipped to answer. Um, so it's a, it's a spin off of the plantation of, of Ulster. One could argue, and uh, and it's um, there was the penal laws. There were right. uh, there was a spin over of those. Um, that they were pretty much being discriminated, the Catholics were being discriminated against. Uh, there's one man, the one vote. There was that, that campaign. And yeah, sorry, uh, you, you carry on.
1: No, absolutely. It's the long term reasons and the short term factors as well. So those long term divisions, absolutely. Ulster becoming moving from being the most Irish of Ireland to the most English of Ireland. That divided society exists since the 17th century. Mm. And as it's reflected the 19th century, that's zero-sum politics that one side wins something, the other side is viewing itself as losing. Mm. And that's, in some ways, still remains the case even Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Mm. Um, the solution that was created was never a proper solution. The solution I'm referring to is when the two states, the two Irelands, were established in in the early 1920s, and the Northern Ireland state, as we were continuing to be a part of the United Kingdom, that was ne- that was solving one problem in terms of Southern Ireland becoming independent or moving towards full independence, but leaving a huge, a large community in, within Northern Ireland, mm. a large minority that was not satisfied.
0: I, I should also state, uh, because this this does not get mentioned enough uh, today, in that the, the Protestants were being discriminated against. The Protestants' working class, they were in a lump with the, with the Irish working, uh, sorry, the Catholics' working class, because they were suffering the same hard harsh laws against them. So um, the civil rights movement of the 60s was actually campaigning for them as much as, John Hume was actually mm-hmm. campaigning as much for them as he was for, for the, the, the nationalist
1: community. Ah. And Ivan Cooper was obviously an important founding member of the SDLP as well. Mm. So, yeah, and, you know, different, you could go look at the early 1930s when Catholic and Protestant working classes actually did unite in trying to argue for better rights, better welfare. Uh, But the effectiveness of the Union's government was often to make sure that Protestants did not fully join in with their Catholic counterparts in terms of demanding better rights. The focus remained on the constitutional political questions.
0: Yeah. Um, so,
1: in terms of let's jump
0: forward and uh, how did it end?
1: Well, different reasons, and you can go back to Sunningdale, but you can also those moves by Hume, but also the British government. Um, uh, um British government was involved in negotiations with Sinn Fein and IRA, a lot of these secret negotiations. But what's really important is the two governments, the Irish and British governments, working more closely together. They did work together at the Sunningdale Agreement in the 70s to focus on militarisation. To win the conflict on all sides, Mm -hmm. Uh, but into the eighties, you think look at different agreements, the Anglo-Irish Agreement between Margaret Thatcher and Gareth Fitzgerald. That's an important point. In nineteen ninety-two,
0: isn't that brilliant? Though you know, Margaret Thatcher had a big part to play in the peace process. I love that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, without that, that was the first time the Irish government had a real say, Mm. and that was very important from a nationalist perspective that the Irish government were involved. And the nationalist community, understandably, would always look to the Irish government as protecting them. Now, the Irish government has fulfilled that role less well, arguably, for much of the 20th century. But even that was a problem with looking just to uh, protecting one side. That's not, never the way it really could work. When the Irish and the British government work together in protecting all of the community in Northern Ireland, that's when things work well together. Mm. Downing Street Declaration in 1992, that's another really important point when the British government said they have no selfish or strategic interests in Northern Ireland. The Irish government fully recognises the principle of consent. Whatever the wishes of the majority of the people of Northern Ireland, that is the state that they belong to. All that is part of the Good Friday Agreement. Of course, the police, a, a, a body to establish a new police force, police service in Northern Ireland. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. And all, So all those things came together. But it was a voice of civil servants, you know, a lot of Irish civil servants, you know, and it's not just John Hume, uh, British civil service as well. You know, it's not just Blair and 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 Ahern and Clinton. While they're important and you need politicians to lead this, yes. it can't be just civil servants. Mm-hmm. But what's brilliant about people is when they set their minds to creating solutions. And you can see that with the police service of Northern Ireland. The different symbols.
0: Yeah.
1: It's inclusive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what has to happen.
0: So then let's move forward to Brexit. How has that impacted Ireland?
1: Well, that, for a for a good while, the problem was the British and Irish governments weren't working well closely together, and there are still problems there and legacy issues. Will the British government legislate on how how the those that were accused and alleged to kill people in during including elements of the security forces will there be? Um, um, court cases, will they be brought to account for their actions in, in the courts If British government goes one way and acts in a way to make prevent that, that is hugely problematic hopefully they won't go there, and they have rolled back, now there is an attempt to try to work together, but it, it all goes back to what state you want to belong to, and the unionist concerns falling on from Brexit are is Northern Ireland will be closer to Dublin and Brussels than it will be to London The nationals see the problems of having a border. Where is that border? Because for a long time, we didn't have a border. That was great. We could be Irish, British, European. It didn't matter. Now it matters. Because one state, United Kingdom, is outside of the European Union. Now borders have to be reintroduced. The question is, where does that border lay?
0: And where is it? (laughs) There's no answer to that question in this podcast. Some, well unionists are arguing that it exists up to the, the IRC, uh between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But um yeah, we don't need to go there. So uh
1: <laughs>
0: so yeah it's 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 really weird, you know. I, I, I kinda I have a lot of sympathy for the for the unionist community up nor, in Northern Ireland, but I do see Brexit as the DUP who, who championed for it they did not game it out, and I see them as turkeys voting for Christmas, you know, and um, that's the uh, the way it's played out. I mean, obviously, there's a whole other side that they, they they're, they're arguing that the the whole of the UK because Northern Ireland actually voted to remain, mm-hmm. as did Scotland, as did London, but it was England. And Wales that voted to leave, but the numbers just that that four percent carried it over that fifty two versus forty eight, and you know, the argument for for years and still goes on is that Northern Ireland said um, Northern Ireland voted to remain, but it was a UK wide vote, so that's that's their argument. You know, it's sad. I think it's really sad that Brexit is a real tragic. Story, a self-inflicted wound that didn't need to happen. And it, in terms of, I remember I was at a party with my for my brother's birthday, and they were saying one of the guys is saying we didn't need to pull, we didn't need to pull a bullet, you know. Um, he's talking about his mm. community rather than him himself, you know. Uh, but um, it's a real, it's a real sad story. But um, it, the future is really you talk about um change earlier. You know, the, the only thing constant is change and the future is very uncertain.
1: Absolutely. I'm a bit slightly more hopeful that there are some signs that they're trying to ease back and to, to, there's an, uh, maybe increasing awareness of the need to get the institutions, the power-sharing government back in operation. Um, I can see maybe that happening over the next time period, but it's still it's still very uncertain whether that will happen or not. Now The power-sharing government now hasn't existed for... Quite a long time, you know, and that is hugely problematic, obviously not having a, a government in Northern Ireland. Um, but I'm still, you know, you look at the longer term, it's still much better than where it was. Now and the, fe- the fear is that it can go back. You know, we see signs occasionally and not just more than occasionally, sometimes that those divisions are still very real. But it's still dramatically better. Than mm. where it was, and and, and you know, the broadly the island has moved on dramatically. You know, and the Irish population, the population of the island, for example, is now um, in, in in what southern Ireland, Ireland, um five uh, five point one million, Northern Ireland one point nine million. That's a seven million, obviously. Even the family was eight point five. We're slowly inching back up to those numbers again. You know, it is in that sense a success story in ways, and the transformation is incredible. Now there's huge problems we've touched on what's happening still in Northern Ireland those divisions but even in Ireland you know the problems in terms of housing homelessness the lack of accommodation the education is very interesting what's happening there we still have the patronal schools are still the religious institutions Catholic or Protestant schools is that the way it should be or the lack of non-denominational institutions it is available but it's very slow glacial Mm. that change there's the it's now, discussion about, you know, still today the Irish constitution has a reference to the women's place being in, in the home. Mm-hmm. There is a commitment and there's a desire, a wide desire to change that to a non-gendered and, uh, and, uh, and language and to ensure that it reflects um, the reality of the importance of caring in the home not by a specific gender mm-hmm. but they still have been unable to date to uh, agree a form of wording and it is difficult to agree wording and we know with that, with northern ireland the good friday agreement and all that mm-hmm. um, but it shouldn't be impossible when again people set their minds to do things they can make it happen
0: and i think also the longer even even the period of inactive government there's still less people dying, and the longer this maintains, the better chance there is for change uh, to be sustained, um, where people don't die. Yes. So uh, long may that continue. Mm. Should we wrap it up here? We're kind of, we're kind of, we kind of uh, arrived at the end of uh, yeah. the end of the road uh, chronologically. So. Um, I'm going to say thank you, Tomas, for for your time again. And um, what I will say to the listeners is that um, if they want to find out more about uh, Northern Ireland, there's a whole podcast episode in the Galway podcast for that. Is there anything else you want want to say yourself?
1: No, thanks very much. Very much enjoyed today. Um, And Best of luck with future editions of your podcasts. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, Thank you very much. Okay, we'll have you on again. I'm sure there'll be something bubbling up and we'll get you in again. Okay, cheers, Tomas. Thank you very much. Slam. This has been a Social Media Original Podcast and production.